get to be together. There's something about lifting up praise to God with the people of God. And I don't know if you had the best Thanksgiving ever. I don't know if it was complicated with family. I don't know if you're exhausted from traveling around or uh, if you're like us and everyone was sick and you were recovering all week. Oh, we got, we got four cases of the flu in the Fidel family the past week. Uh, I'm good now, by the way, so front row, don't freak out. Three ear infections, a, a yeast infection. I mean, it's like, whoa, TMI, but it's like it would not stop. The enemy was just after the Fidel family. So I'm grateful to be with the people of God, singing the praise of God, preaching the word of God today. And if you've been tracking with us over the past couple of months, we've been in this series called Make Disciples, and we're talking about the Great Commission. Before Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, he gave us this commandment to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it was two weeks ago that we saw 50 people share their story and get baptized in this room in a Sunday that we will never forget. So awesome. And it's so awesome seeing in real time that living out the purposes that Jesus sets as the mission for our lives awakens us to live for the reason we exist. We got to see that commandment lived out in real time. And so last Sunday, Tyler Miller, our youth pastor, preached an incredible message on sanctification that if you missed it, you need to check it out about how we become more like Jesus over time. And I, I knew I had a specific word on my heart for this Sunday, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. And I told our team, you know what? Let's not end make disciples. I think Make Disciples is going to become the first and only never-ending sermon series at Auburn Community Church because it's the great commission of Jesus. It's what we always need to come back to. So there will be a time in 2022 where we go back and do our sermon series, Make Disciples. And it'll probably happen in 2023 and 2024, maybe multiple times a year because we need to be reminded this is the reason why we have breath in our lungs and it's the reason why our church exists. So I'm putting that series on pause and it's never coming to an end just to have this conversation about something that I feel like is a felt need across the board in our church, and more than anything, a personal journey for me. I've never preached a sermon that I've lived through more than the one I'm about to preach to you now. And the topic today is family. We're talking about navigating difficult relationships between the people that you love the most. And if you can see the screen behind me, you can see that those are names within a family. That's the genealogy of Jesus. And it's a part of the scriptures that we usually skip over around Christmas time to get to the birth, to get to the cool stuff, to get to Joseph and Mary and donkeys and manger and all the cool stuff, angels and incense and myrrh and all the cool stuff around Christmas. But we skip over all these Hebrew names that we don't know how to pronounce, not realizing the power that is in the fact that Jesus was born into a broken, dysfunctional, crazy family tree. And so I want to preach to you today for something I've experienced personally, but also something that I see as a felt need across the board in our church. In fact, when I look at people who are maturing spiritually in our church, I'm seeing a constant and consistent fault area where many of us feel helpless on how to navigate, even though we're growing in our relationship with God, and even though we're coming to discover new things about who Jesus is and walking in that joy and that life and that peace. It doesn't seem like that peace is translating to a lot of our family relationships that matter the most to us. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Aren't you glad you have family visiting? It's almost like he planned that. He being God. Um, the title 
of this little mini sermon pre-Christmas series next week. My friend Stuart Hall is going to join in on it. It's going to be amazing. If you've never heard him, next Sunday is going to be incredible. But we're calling this My Family is Crazy. My family is crazy. So look at somebody next to you, especially if they're in your family, and say, my family is crazy. My family is crazy. Oh, this is so great. This is so great, just seeing the faces. Okay, I want to clarify what I mean. I don't want to offend anybody. When I say my family is crazy, I'm saying that every family, no matter how perfect it looks on the outside, has some level of crazy within it. And primarily, when I say my family is crazy, I'm not talking about that crazy uncle who everybody knows when he shows up, it's going to be bad. I'm not talking about that family member who everybody's praying for, everybody's leaned in for, and it's like, whoa, the level of dysfunction and craziness that's there. No, when I say it, I'm not really looking to point at other people. I'm saying it from a state of going, I am a broken, sinful human being who's going to carry that brokenness into whatever relationship I'm a part of. So the primary reason why my family is crazy is because I'm in it. And the primary reason why your family is crazy is because you're in it. And learning to navigate personal brokenness first and foremost is the key to living out the Christian life within a family like all of our families that are marred by sin. I also want to say from the beginning in a preface that there are no perfect families regardless of how good it looks on the outside. There are issues beneath the issues for so many of us. And they're not just issues to navigate in secret. I believe they are discipleship Jesus Discipleship Jesus. Discipleship issues because on a lot of cough medicine, guys, because look up here. Being a disciple of Jesus is not simply about being his student and him being your teacher. It's about being adopted into a new family that has new norms. So discipleship is primarily the transition between your family of origin into living as a member of the new family of Jesus. And it's not that everything about the family that you come from is bad, but discipleship to Jesus primarily is about adoption and learning to walk as a member of the kingdom of God. And as you're doing that, you mature over time in a process called sanctification that Tower talked about last week that exists to make you ever brighter over time. But here's what no one tells you at the beginning of that journey. And here's what the past 10 years have looked like for me in learning this and preaching this out of a very personal place. No one tells you that no matter how much you mature, in your relationship with Jesus, that has no bearing on how much your family decides to mature in their relationships with Jesus, if any. And so what I'm noticing happening across the board in our church is we got people who are growing in Christ. We got people who are reading their Bibles. They're deciding to change. They're seeing the fruit of the Spirit grow in their lives. They're becoming more patient. They're becoming more loving. They're becoming more purpose-driven. They're becoming more worshipful. But they're becoming increasingly hurt and paralyzed by the complication that comes with growing at a faster pace, if any pace at all, from family members who they love and adore and who they want to get it. I'm watching so many of you end up paralyzed and losing your peace as the byproduct of carrying a false level of responsibility for your family that you were never intended to carry. That's what I want to preach toward. I know it's specific, I know it's not going to hit everybody, but I believe any family navigating any level of brokenness, which is all of us, are going to get something out of today. And I believe that we need to speak to people who genuinely want the best for their families. 
See, this isn't a you grow in your relationship with Jesus and you become this high and mighty Christian and now you know better than your parents and now you know better than your siblings and you know better than your cousins and and you just want them to get it. No, it's a genuine, loving, mostly authentic want for them to experience the life that's truly life. Because when you know Jesus, you want everybody to know about it. You want everybody to grow in it. You want everybody to walk in it, but particularly those who are related to you, the people who are closest to you. It's like, I'm not judging you. I just want you to have the life that's truly life, and I want this to translate to you. But here's what's happening at our church. We got a lot of well-meaning believers, myself included, who would love to take what God has revealed to them and force it on people who are not there, not ready, and not growing the same way. And the byproduct of that is that they end up being off-put by the way you presented it, and you end up dropping your peace the second you grab that false responsibility. And it's got to stop. There's got to be a place where you come to understand that your purpose in the kingdom of God is not to ride the roller coaster of how your family members are behaving lately. Too many of you, your entire state this morning is the byproduct of the most dysfunctional member of your family hurting you again. And you can't live your life on the roller coaster ride of how they've decided to treat you this week or whether or not they've decided to stay sober or whether or not they've decided to clean up their mouth. You have to live your life in a way that's caring and loving of them, but also is rooted in a different identity as you grow in the family of Jesus. And the good news about Jesus is he wasn't just born into a broken family. He lived out his life within family relationships that were beyond complicated, and he modeled a roadmap for how you and I are supposed to live our lives. So all I've got for you today is the overflow of what I've experienced and what I see in the scriptures that's way too ignored and way less talked about than it needs to be. Are you ready to go to the word of God? If you brought your Bible, hold it up, hold it up. All over the 10 a.m., we need this. So many Bibles today. It's like, man, after last night, what else am I gonna reach for? I need this. Hold them up in Birmingham. Birmingham, we know that um, there's a lot more fans of that other team out there with you. If y'all wanna say your annoying phrase, say it now. Turn with me to Matthew chapter one. I know, it's like, it's too soon, Miles, it's too soon. Matthew chapter one. But you guys have no idea how complicated it is to pastor in this city, knowing that you're talking about two very different realities of who you're standing in front of on the basis of the the, the outcome of a game. It's like, God, am I reaching for hope in the depths of despair or are we celebrating and doing five offerings tomorrow? It's like, which one? I don't know. Anyway, somewhere in the middle because Jesus reigns. Here we go. Okay, this is one of two accounts of Jesus's family tree. Matthew's is a little bit different than Luke's. Luke's traces the life of Jesus all the way back to Adam. But Matthew is trying to show you Jesus' connection to two guys in particular. Let me show it to you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. This is the genealogy. You probably have a footnote there. Look at the bottom. Or the account of the origin of Jesus, the Messiah, anointed one, Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why does Matthew talk about David and Abraham and then start the genealogy with Abraham? Why those two names at the beginning? Because The purpose of Matthew's gospel from the very beginning is to show you that Jesus came to initiate a new family and a new kingdom. And Abraham is the patriarch and David is the king. 
and Jesus is in line with both of them. So the purpose of this genealogy is to go, Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's the promised king. He's the promised Messiah. He's the father of this nation. He's the one who's going to usher us into a right relationship with our heavenly father. So what does it mean to belong to Jesus? It means to belong to two things. A family where your brothers and sisters in Christ surround you and God is your father, and a kingdom where Jesus will reign forever and ever, and we will give him glory, praise, and honor as the reason why we exist. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now let's read some Hebrew names. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, not Salmon, for all you you fishermen out there, it's it's Salmon. What did you do for Thanksgiving? I studied Hebrew names, okay? Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Now, if you don't know a lot about the Old Testament of your Bible, these are some heavy hitters. These are some big names in our faith that are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. And for the most part, every name I just mentioned is not the name of some kind of spiritual titan who understood everything about God and obeyed God in a really convenient way. I just read a list of names that is so locked and loaded with broken dysfunction, it's hard to even keep up with what you should mention. And I could talk about Abraham and David easily. Now, they're awesome, and they follow God faithfully. They exhibited faith that I can only dream about doing, David and Goliath, Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son. But they were also broken and dysfunctional too. Like when God promised Abraham's wife, Sarah, that they were gonna have a kid and waiting, waiting, waiting. He's in the waiting, he's in the waiting. And then Sarah goes, just sleep with my maidservant and do it your own way. And Abraham's like, fine, you told me to. And then he, so he goes over there and you already know about David. We'll get to him in one second. But I'm not even talking about the main guys. I'm talking about, let's talk about Abraham has a son named Isaac who has a son named Jacob, which that's a little bit misleading because Jacob was Isaac's second son. His first son was Esau. Esau was his favorite. Jesus' family line has a long history of favoritism, by the way. And Jacob, whose name means deceiver, is conniving and manipulative and actually steals the firstborn blessing from his brother Esau. Spends his whole life as a deceiver. And for whatever reason, God decides to choose this man and change his name to Israel and become the father of the nation of Israel. Where Jacob, look at what it says, has uh, Judah and his brothers. Who are those guys? Oh, those are the 12 tribes of Israel. You're like, that's awesome. Great guys, right? No, no, no. Those are the same guys who leave their brother Joseph for dead because they're tired of him telling his stories about his father's favoritism. And then they go, you know what? Starving to death at the bottom of a pit is kind of miserable. Let's just sell him into slavery. Like, that'll work out better. That's Judah and his brothers. Of all the brothers, the line that Jesus is born into is Judah. And if you read about Judah, let's read about his children, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Let's talk about Tamar for a second. Tamar was married to one of Judah's sons. And in Genesis 33, it tells us that God decides that that son was wicked and so just takes him off the earth. I'm not meaning to make light of that, but 
We should fear God more when we read the scriptures. And so that son gets removed. The next son, Judah basically tells him, hey, you got to take Tamar because it's your brother's wife. It was a custom back then. And so he figures out a very X-rated way of getting out of his responsibility of fathering those children. You need to read the Bible, by the way. There's some stories in here that'll make you go, whoa, that's in here. And so here's what happens later. Tamar is left without a husband. And so while Judah is grieving the loss of a family member, Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and tricks Judah into sleeping with her. He gets her pregnant, and she ends up having twins that are listed in the genealogy. This is daughter-in-law, guys. And then he wants to kill her, but because he took or she took his cord and his seal, she is able to prove that he slept with her. And this is the tribe of Judah. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. Miles, why are you depressing me about Jesus's family tree? I promise this is not supposed to be depressing. This is supposed to be hope-giving and tell you that if you think your family is broken and dysfunctional, this one is more. And this is the family that Jesus is born into. As you go down, you see more females mentioned. How many of you knew that Boaz, who took Ruth, who we love to talk about, how many of you knew that his mom was Rahab? Who's Rahab? Read the book of Joshua. She's a prostitute in Jericho who hides the Israelite spies from being noticed by the people in Jericho. And you're like, what were the Israelite spies doing hanging out with a prostitute while they're supposed to be spying on Jericho? You do the math. God is dealing with a lot of broken people in the people he chooses. And that's another sermon for another day. Rahab, former prostitute, ends up being the mother of Boaz, who ends up marrying Ruth, who's a Moabite, and they were looked at as less than human, and then they have a son whose name is Obed, and then he's the grandfather of David who's born to Jesse, who presents, when he went to present his eight sons to Samuel, he didn't even bring David. He didn't even invite David. There's favoritism in that. David's got all kind of daddy issues. And then he steps onto the scene as the king, the ultimate king. Let's just keep reading. Isn't this fun? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And just when you think, oh, it's getting better, like, here's, here's two really good guys, the wisest man who ever lived and the great king, David. Okay, but Solomon's mom was Bathsheba, who was a woman who was bathing and being watched by David, who was on his roof, who took her when her husband Uriah was away at war, where David should have been, and then David got her pregnant in committing adultery, and to cover it up, he tried to get Uriah to sleep with her, but then Uriah didn't want to do that because it would dishonor his men, and so David has Uriah murdered on the front lines of battle, and then takes Bathsheba as his own. Their son dies as a consequence for the sin. God redeems that story and gives us Solomon, the wisest king who ever lives, and you're like, Solomon, he's great, wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, right? He got it right. Yeah, he got it right in a lot of ways, except for the whole thousand wives thing. So, so when you have a thousand wives, here's what no one tells you. No one tells you that the kids aren't going to get along. And so there's a lot of family tension that happens among Solomon's children who all compete for the throne. Some of the names that you're about to read, gosh, it's just, it, it gets bad. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. I think Asa is one of the most underrated names, and Asa's playing uh, bass today, and I always tell him, I think you have the coolest name. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. There's a less cool name. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now, this is where if you 
know your Bible a little bit better, you recognize these names. Primarily in First and Second Kings, if you want to read more about the names that you're reading now. And there's a couple of superstars. Josiah leads a nationwide revival that we're going to talk about in January of 2022. He's awesome. Hezekiah is pretty incredible as well, except for at the end of his life, because he would always call on God when he was desperate, but then when God prospered him, he became arrogant, and so he showed the Babylonian spies the armory that he wasn't supposed to show them, the envoys from Babylon, and it actually leads to Israel being taken captive by the Babylonians, and so it just goes to show that we're not just desperate for God when things are bad, but we need to stay desperate when we, that's another sermon for another day. But the other names there, Ahaz, Manasseh, these are not just evil kings of Judah who disobeyed the Lord. These are kings who sacrifice their children on altars to other gods. The level of idolatry and wickedness that sets in during this era in Israel is unprecedented. And it is the reason why Israel is taken captive in Babylon. So when you read your Bible in the book of Daniel about King Nebuchadnezzar coming through and taking away some boys for his own and raping the women and killing the men, you're like, God, you just let your people get ravaged by Babylon? Here's what you don't understand. For all those generations of kings... There were prophets calling out, you still have time to repent. You still have time to repent. Come back to God. And the people have ignored God for generation after generation after generation. And then it gets so bad in the exile. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father, verse 12, of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I don't have time to go into all of those names, but look up here and don't miss this. I'm not telling you about Jesus' family tree to just laugh at them and depress you a little bit about his family roots. I'm telling you that today because if anyone can confidently say, my family is crazy, Jesus can. And when I look at those names, let's put that slide away and just put all those names up there. When I look at the names that are written in the genealogy of Jesus, it doesn't depress me or just make me sad. It gives me hope. Because of how aware I am of my own sinful brokenness, it gives me hope that by faith, I'm not disqualified from participating as a member of the family of God, and neither are you. The first message I want you to get from the genealogy is this. The person in this room who believes that this Jesus thing is not for them, that they have outsinned the grace of God, that they are too bad or too broken to still be considered to be used by God, I just want you to know, based on what you read in your Bible, you are the perfect candidate for God to do something new. You are the perfect candidate for God to use. And I know I just pointed out a lot of different failures, but among all those failures were men and women who by faith were a part of the nation of God and despite their issues and despite their brokenness, when God got a hold of even just a few people, miracles happen. Your sin does not intimidate Jesus. In fact, your sin is the motivation for Jesus to draw near to you because he knows how much you need him. Your sin has never once recoiled Jesus away from you as if he's got this holy huddle over here that you can't be a part of because you got your stuff to figure out. The very fact that Jesus was born into this family tells me that Jesus is not the least bit intimidated to be around a sinner like me or a sinner like you. This should give you confidence. 
And this is an invitation for everybody, not just the people who got their stuff together. And not only is he born to complicated family tree generationally, he's born to a level of complication situationally that few of us can even imagine. We've glorified the Christmas story and we put Mary and Joseph and animals and gifts and oh wow, it's so beautiful. What a nativity. Guys, you realize this is a teenage virgin who's engaged to be married to a good man. And in that time, families were extended networks within communities. When Mary got pregnant and they found out Joseph wasn't the dad, can you imagine what was said about this girl? And this guy. And then, and then for him to be so noble as to try to get out of it quietly. And then angel to go, hey, that, that baby is yours. You need to take him as your son. If you, if you have a story that has adoption, you have something in common with the family of Jesus. Because Joseph is the adoptive father of Jesus. He's got to choose him to take him in. And Jesus' whole life will be plagued by complicated in his family of origin. You'll see it a couple times, and we're going to talk about some of these interactions, but you'll see it in a big way when there's one time, I never knew this until recently studying this passage deeply, there's one time where Jesus is in a discussion, if you will, with the Pharisees that's getting a little heated, and they end up claiming Abraham as their father, who's at the top of Jesus' family line, which is interesting, because if anybody can claim Abraham as their father, it's Jesus. But they throw an insult at Jesus that you, you don't see it in English, but you see it in the original language. They say... We are not illegitimate children. Our father is Abraham. Do you want to know what they said in in the real language? They said, we are not bastards like you. You don't even have a dad is the insult that they threw at Jesus. And that tells you that he probably has heard that before. And that's when Jesus in the most epic way tells them, oh, you're right. You do have a dad, but your dad's not Abraham. It's the father of lies. And he goes off about saying, that's when Jesus is like, man, what a response. I want to be able to respond like that, but I can't. I'm not Jesus, and don't try that one at home. Um, (laughs) I just want you to know today that Jesus' situation was complicated at best, and you are not alone in the situation that you're in. But, but, can't miss this. It's not enough to just tell people, Jesus went through a tough family road. Yours is tough. You're not alone. It's, It's good comfort. It's always good to be comforted to know somebody else is going through your issue, But you want to know what comforts you even more? And the brokenness that I got to personally is when you're not just comforted with someone's company, but you're also comforted with their lifestyle and a roadmap for what you're supposed to do. So you might be here and be like, great, I'm not alone. I I got a lot of things going on in different family relationships. Jesus' was complicated. Thank you for that encouraging word. I'm welcomed into the family of God. But here's what's more helpful. What do I do in my family relationships that are the most difficult? Like, does Jesus offer me anything personally to have handles for what am I supposed to do? Like, what am I supposed to do about the fact that I know all my siblings are jealous of me and I don't know how to navigate a relationship with them and I want the relationship to be loving? What am I supposed to do about the fact that my kids are walking away from God? What am I supposed to do with the fact that my parents are divorced and hate each other? What am I supposed to do with the fact that my aunt and uncle have this issue or that I wish that so badly my cousins would come to believe? What am I supposed to do? And the great thing about Jesus is he doesn't just keep you company and go, I've been there. He gives you a roadmap for how to navigate it. And the way to navigate it is not to make your life a doormat for other people's difficulties and dysfunction. The way to navigate it is watch how Jesus keeps himself healthy as a member of the kingdom of God and loves and cares for his family in a way that is the only rightful response. So all I have left with this sermon, if this is still helpful for you, I have three points 
that have been written into my life personally from paying attention to the life of Jesus. These points legitimately have been brought to you by decades of suffering on my part. You're welcome for that. I'm only a little bit into pastoring, but I'm finding out that the real way you pastor people is suffer and learn to have empathy for people who are going through stuff. It's really unfortunate calling that I'm super excited about the next seven decades of doing it. Psych, not living that long. I haven't said psych in a while. That felt weird. Um, <laughs> stay with me. Cough medicine. Jesus gives us a roadmap. I say this out of love, compassion, experience, but more than anything, I say this from paying attention to how does the son of God who's born into this family tree and this level of complicated, how does he navigate his family relationships? Number one is this, let go of false responsibility by embracing your true identity. This will be the battle of keeping yourself healthy in a family that is not perfect. You have to learn to let go of false responsibility and hold on to your true identity. What's false responsibility? It's when you cross over from rightful care and concern and love into controlling manipulation and anxiousness. False responsibility is when you carry your kid's relationship with God more than they do. It's when you feel the weight of another's choices more than they take responsibility for them. And it can actually lead to a more unhealthy family dynamic than a family that's estranged. If you do your research psychologically, you will find out that the opposite of a healthy family is not a broken dysfunctional one. The opposite of a healthy family is actually what, psycho what psychologists would call an enmeshed family. It's when a family exists within a di dynamic where there's all these secret expectations and manipulations and relationships where you don't even really know the conversation under the conversation that you're having. There's all this surface presentation, but then there's the conversation that's really being had. And there's, and there's the expectations that come from, well, we know she went through this and he went through this. And we got we to gotta tiptoe around that and we got to navigate this. Some of you know exactly what I am talking about. And it is a level of paralysis where thinking about Thanksgiving and already your mind's on Christmas and all you're thinking about, you're not thinking about Jesus doing something amazing in your family. You're thinking about surviving the holidays. Like you're saying, I just want to make it through the conversation. I just want to make it through without anybody blowing up this time. That is the result of families that have crossed over into a false responsibility where family has gone from a gift from God to an idol to be worshiped. And when family becomes idolatry, it leads to a level of false responsibility that takes people captive. So how does Jesus' lifestyle free us from this? Well, you pay attention to the limited interactions that you get with Jesus and his family of origin, and it's really fascinating. At 12 years old, Jesus' parents took him to a festival. This is in Luke chapter 2. And then they, they're walking home, and they realize days after losing Jesus that he's no longer with the family. Big parenting fail. Um, which I don't want to throw shade at Mary and Joseph, but guys, he's the son of God. Like, you should be paying attention to what this kid does all the time. Days later, where's Jesus? Which, in, in context, it is more normal because they traveled together as family units and assumed he was with aunts and uncles and whatever. But yeah, there is some shade, major shade. And so, and so they come back and they find that Jesus decided on his own at 12 to hang out with Pharisees and teachers of the law and talk about the Torah. And these guys are just dumbfounded by his knowledge at 12. And when his parents come to get him, he makes this comment. He says, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? 
Now, we're not able to emulate the behavior of the perfect son of God. Fully man, fully God. I get that. But what you see in Jesus is an understanding of his responsibility as a son to Mary and Joseph, but also his primary responsibility as a son of God. And this is not the only time Jesus will say something surprising when his family runs up to him. There's a time in Matthew chapter 12, you can read about it this week, where Jesus is teaching and the house is overflowing with people. And then his family arrives. And somebody taps Jesus on the shoulder, whispers in his ear and says, hey, your family's here. They want to talk to you. And Jesus says, my family, my mother, my brothers and my sisters are those that do the will of God. Now you find out more contextually that Jesus' family, John tells us this, didn't even believe that he was the Messiah. I believe Mary did, but beyond that, they thought their brother, their cousin was crazy. They're like, he's leading a movement of miracles and he actually thinks he's God's son. And so when they come to pull him aside, that's not to hug him because they haven't seen him in a while. That's to slow him down and try to talk some sanity into him and go, you need to calm down with this kingdom of God stuff. And Jesus knows in a loving way, this is where I draw the line. That is called a boundary. And boundaries are God's gifts to his children so that they can draw healthy lines in their family and exist as a member of the kingdom of God and a caring, compassionate member of their family of origin. You gotta learn this. There's obviously the book by uh, Henry Cloud and, and, and there's been multiple versions of it since then. It's very, very helpful. But I love when psycholo- psychologically all these experts are arriving at conclusions that Jesus wrote into the story and you're like, we could have just read it and got it from the source all along. But, but, but you're not looking at a Jesus who doesn't care about his family. He's not walking around going, I don't care about y'all. I'm God's son. I'm doing my own thing over here. Y'all, when he was dying on the cross, he entrusted the care of his mother to John knowing that his father, Joseph, had passed away probably at a young age. And he says, mother, your son. Son, your mother. He cares. He's compassionate. But he will not let his compassionate care for his family cross over to an unhealthy level of false responsibility because he knows his true identity. And here's what he knows. You can write this down. He knows that the eternal nature of the kingdom of God is greater than the temporal nature of your earthly family. This is what you got to get. The eternal nature of the kingdom of God is greater than the temporal nature of your earthly family. In heaven, we will not be organized according to family clans. We will be one family with one father united to the son, and we will all be brothers and sisters in Christ. So the family that lives forever is the family of God. And the reason why that's important is because the family that you belong to is never intended to be your source of peace, stability, security, and value. So the idolatry of family is when we place such a high value on family that that's where we get our peace. That's where we get our security. That's where we get our stability. And that's why when things go wrong, we're not okay. Because we didn't even realize it, but we rooted our source in something that's temporal. Instead of rooting ourselves into something that's eternal, what is eternal? Your identity in Christ. Your position as a member of the kingdom of God. And so here's here's what you have to learn how to do. You have to learn how to Make all of your stability and security come from God, but also lovingly accept this reality, and this is going to hurt some of you, and the way you act toward your family, I mean this to be a little bit abrasive. You have to learn that you are not God. You are not God, and that is a good thing. Your family's spiritual journey is not your responsibility. 
your family's consistent decision-making in a way that's contrary to the ways of God is not yours to carry the burden of. It's yours to pray toward. It's yours to go on that journey with them. I'm not saying disconnect yourself, but I'm saying the root of this issue is really a lack of trust in God. Because it's like, if I was God, I would have my parents, and I would have my siblings, and I would have my cousins, and I would have my kids, and I would have my marriage in a better place. But here's what you're saying when you say that. You're saying, God, your grace and your mercy and sovereignty was good enough for me, but I just don't trust it to get through to them. Let me promise you this. It took a lot more to save you than you're giving God credit for. And uh, if he got to you, he's going to get to them on his time. He doesn't need you to do it. He invites you to participate in it, but lovingly, lovingly, respectfully, you're not God. Stop acting like it. You do not get to take that responsibility on yourself. And God goes, hey, let, me, let me lighten your load. My, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Guess who's supposed to carry the burden of the legacy of your family? Not you. Jesus. And it's so much better that way. Next two are going to be faster. Number two, be patient with their issues by remembering God's patience with yours. That, man, that, that's the secret to healthy anything. Healthy family dynamics, healthy marriage, healthy friendships. Be patient with their issues by remembering God's patience with yours. We have to, no matter how much we mature in our relationship with God, we have to stay in a place where we remember what it costs to save us and forgive us. And I have found in my life, as you mature in your relationship with Jesus, your sins don't necessarily become increasingly less. They become increasingly clear in the most secretive ways. So here's what I've found. As I've matured in Christ for decades, a lot of things that were sinful that God saved me from, I just had more sins on the surface of those that hid those, and they were hidden faults that I was totally unaware of. Like when you get saved, you get saved from uh, just indulging on your flesh and doing all these things that are clearly contrary to the ways of God. But then you start walking with Jesus and you go, hold on a second, I'm super judgmental, manipulative, and controlling, see myself as better than, like I can't even get a revelation from God without becoming arrogant and looking down on others who haven't had the same relationship or the same revelation within five seconds of getting it. There are times I do that about y'all. There are times I see stuff in the scriptures or I start living out something and I kind of go, man, what is wrong with these people at my church? Like, I, I don't know. They got real jobs during the week. They don't get to just study this all week long. Like, I, I, don't know how, I don't know how they're not seeing this. And I'm going, I literally can't learn anything without there being sin laced in it. You are more sinful and broken than you have given yourself credit for. It took a lot more patience for God to save you than you've given him credit for. And the key to being patient with people who have issues that are all over the map is remembering that the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, demonstrated a level and continues to demonstrate a level of patience with you. That if, you, if it goes unacknowledged, no wonder you'll become arrogant. No wonder you'll become impatient. No wonder you'll be looking at them like, why can't you just blank? And I believe the secret is in staying in tune with this is the price that was paid for me. So here's a prayer that will help you do that. It's from Psalms. God, search my heart. Show me my hidden faults. This personally for me, this is my fuel for forgiving others. And it's my fuel for patience with others. Because God, if you search my heart and show me my hidden faults, you're going to find a lot. 
And you know what? God, God answers that prayer consistently. Sometimes it's, it's very painful. But you know what? That, that, it doesn't make me depressed like, oh, I'm still such a sinner. It makes me go, that's what it took you to not just save me, but sustain me. Okay. If it took that much and there's that big of a plank on this side, I can let the speck go. Or not let it go. I can endure it for another day, even if they choose not to recognize it. Let go of false responsibility by embracing your true identity. Be patient with their issues by remembering God's patience with yours. Before I give you the last one, um, I, I know these three things are hopefully helpful, but it doesn't cover every family issue in the room. And it definitely doesn't cover every issue for those who are joining us online. And I've I've become really burdened by this. So have our elders so much so that they came to me and they said, hey, we know ACC has grown to a capacity where you can't counsel families one-on-one all week long in your office. That would be impossible to meet with everybody. But I do care about speaking into what you're going through and getting our elders around that. So we're going to be scheduling some strategic times for questions to be asked of us where you can come and go, hey, uh, okay, there's not going to be a line outside my office, but there's going to be an opportunity because I'm personally burdened that belonging to a large church should not mean that you're disqualified from having pastoral counseling available to you. So know that we're working on that. It is a challenge, but we believe in it, and I hope this was helpful. But there is, if you have a specific, like, oh, I just wish you would have spoken to this, you will get that opportunity. Number three, and then we'll sing. Make the kingdom of Jesus the ultimate goal of your family. Okay, this is, this is, a good, this is good. This is a great way to end it. Big issue I see. Being a church in Auburn, Alabama, is that we subconsciously make the ultimate goal of our family two things, accomplishments and harmony. And so unknowingly, we build our families to celebrate the accomplishments of others, and we celebrate our siblings, we celebrate our parents, just as long as they're not more accomplished than us, because we're that insecure. And, and so it's like, I want them to do well, but particularly when it comes to our children, my kid did this. My kid, look, you guys have no idea how advanced I believe my daughters are. Like, I, I already believe. You, you are going to, I was going to say an Ivy League school, but they've gone so crazy theologically. That's not happening. Um, but, but somewhere with a really good education, you're like, Miles, get back to the point. I'm going. But I found that we celebrate, oh, my kid went here. My kid accomplished this. I accomplished this. That we build our families on accomplishments or harmony. I just want everybody to be in the same room. I just want everybody to be okay. I just want everybody to be healthy. And as a parent, I feel that and I respect it. But here's the thing. That is an unbiblical way to build a family. The biblical way of building your family is not asking the question, is everybody okay? The biblical way of building your family is asking the question, is everybody on fire? And I mean consumed with the love of God. And you know the fastest way to start a fire? is to light a match. The best thing you can do for your family is become personally consumed with the love of God and become a beacon of hope for everyone in your family to see that this Jesus thing is not a rumor or a religion. No, it's a transformational relationship that has set you on fire for the glory of God. So at the end of the day, the goal of our families is not to show up in heaven and win at a game that we weren't supposed to be playing. The only goal is for us to get to heaven still in love with him. Yes, we got issues. Yes, we're broken. Yes, we're going to miss it. But at the end of the day, 
Is the ultimate ambition of your family the worship, glory, renown, and fame, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, the name above all names? If you get that right, I promise you it will bear fruit in your family. That's the one you can't miss. Don't give your life to accomplishments and salaries and things that fall away as soon as you take your last breath. Give your life to the only thing that lasts forever. We're gonna pray toward that end. I asked the band to come and sing everybody's favorite song to sing over their family. It's called The Blessing. But before we do, I'm gonna give you a chance to bless your family. The battle begins with prayer. And so if you wanna pray over that family member who this entire message has been burdening you for, you get to do that right now. Husbands, if you wanna pray over your wives, if you got a couple of family members around you and y'all just wanna pray together, this is such a gift. And I don't wanna pray to close this sermon just so all of you close your eyes while the band comes up here. I wanna give you the opportunity to pray over your families and then we will sing these truths over generations to come. So y'all go into a time of prayer and then the band will lead us in just a few, uh, just a few minutes.